In this episode of Going Viral, Professor Robert Boy will speak on the latest information on COVID. GPs still need to be up to date on the latest variants, the mobility associated with these variants, as well as new vaccines, treatments, and therapies. Professor Boy, tell us about yourself. Great to be with you all. My name is Robert Boy. It's Dutch, so you pronounce only one of the two O's. My conflict of interest statement is that I work at the interface of epidemiology, clinical infectious diseases, lab work, uh, and so on. And uh, it's a great place to work, and it's very challenging. I interact in my role with government, academia, and industry, and I consult to all the vaccine companies in Australia, including Vaxis, which make this cutaneous vaccine. The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest on COVID-19, with leading voices from across Australia providing medical professionals with up-to-date information from reliable sources. Here's today's episode. I'm going to give you a bit extra, not just uh, on COVID, but some of the latest, very latest from the last week on flu and monkeypox, and a few bits in between as well. So I hope I can keep your attention and I'll be finished in about 30 minutes. So um, I wonder in your practice, if you get a call in, especially on a Monday morning with a photo of a positive rat test, a rapid antigen test test, and you wonder to yourself, ah, so this person's not coming to work today. And you ask yourself, well, where's the proof of life? Where's the proof of evidence that the test was actually taken on the Sunday or the Monday? Um, and people send me this, and I wonder, do they think I'm stupid that they can send me a picture of something that could have been tested sometime in the last month and expect me to believe it? Well, viruses don't live, but uh, some people like to live outside their work. And um, I actually had a positive test exactly two weeks ago when I arrived on holiday in Tasmania and I spent my week's holiday feeling ill, sitting in a corner watching television. And I've since had two uh, negative tests, as I prove to you now, because you can see the date on the newspaper behind there, can't you? <laughs> so I caught both my episodes of COVID exactly a year apart, exactly two days after getting off a plane. Um, so there's the danger of travel. So Sydney is Kirribilli is where I live. Um, and I've entitled this slide, Living and Dying in the 21st Century. And it's human contact that spreads infections. And it's the lack of human contact that's had so many interesting epidemiological implications in the last uh, couple of years. So we've actually lived in under 15 years through two pandemics and a total of seven WHO public health emergencies of international concern. So that's quite a lot. Um, and what a public health emergency of international concern basically is, a serious sudden, unusual, or unexpected uh, uh, infectious disease event, usually, with implications beyond a particular country's national border. So it's really an extraordinary event, um, which is determined to constitute a public health risk to many states in the world. It's only temporary. It's reviewed every three months, and there's just been a review of the polio one last week, and they've continued on with it. Uh, so polio is an ongoing public health emergency, even though we've almost got it under control. It all came out of the 2005 international health regulations, which came out of the uh, the first SARS outbreak 20 years ago. 
So this is a list of the seven deadly sins, the seven threats we've encountered in under 15 years. And I've labelled it where not to go on your holidays because the fifth one is in the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. And in May last year, there were about eight diseases causing outbreaks in one country at one time, Ebola, COVID, cholera, monkeypox, measles, plague. So please don't go for the Democratic Republic of Congo on your holiday unless you want to get sick like I did in going to Tasmania. Anyway, um, the uh, malaria, which is in the news too for uh, developing better and more effective vaccines, that's a priority for, for the DRC as well. So I, I just wanted to give you a half a minute um, yeah, and go back uh, four years when the Ebola outbreak was declared a public health emergency uh, back in early 2019. And the problem was especially in the DRC, the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, and the WHO stopped short of saying we should shut the borders because that would have the risk of spreading the, the uh, disease even more because it would go underground. So the, uh, the, that was the highest level of alarm from the WHO. And at the same time, the WHO chief who's still in place, uh, Gebre Jesus said, why hasn't it been brought under control? And it's really interesting to reflect just for a moment that Part of the problem was not the disease, but the human reaction to the disease. Healthcare workers were being attacked and uh, Ebola treatment facilities and seven people were killed and 58 people injured. Uh, the distrust of healthcare workers in certain African nations has led to about a third of cases dying before they even get proper medical care from Ebola. And that's just despite a vaccine that's very effective. So even though uh, you know, hundreds of uh, 60,000 people have had the vaccine um, and it's being given to contacts and to contacts of contacts. If you don't have trust in the vaccine, if you don't have vaccination, there's no good having a vaccine without applying it. So moving on now, um, another problem also being encountered at the same time was dozens of children suffering from paralysis from polio. And it also spread beyond the borders of DRC2 Uganda and both the disease of polio and the conspiracy theories were spreading from person to person. And uh, Gabriel Jesus described it as the most worrying polio outbreak today. We've gone in the last uh, 35 years from 350,000 cases annually to just 33 cases of polio in 2018. We are just so close to its eradication, but that's not the point of my talk tonight. That's just a side sideline to grab your attention. Back then in 2019, there were 10 big health threats that the WHO were listing, including influenza and Ebola, but they also had uh, Zika and SARS, and they also had disease X, rather prescient because within a few months, we had COVID-19. Uh, um, so moving on now, controlling COVID-19 has been a great challenge of our last uh, three years, and we've gone through all sorts of measures, including social distancing, masks, vaccines, and antivirals. And now we're hardly using masks, and maybe people wore more masks on planes, I wouldn't catch COVID. But anyway, uh, we are using vaccines, but not as well as we should, and we are using antivirals, and I've had one myself for my current illness. But we've stopped lockdowns and border closures and China has completely opened up. And I'll talk a bit more about that as we go along. 
a multidisciplinary approach is required, as you very well know. So when it comes to vaccines, I'm a vaccinologist, so I'll say just a few short words. There are, as of January last month, 176 vaccines in clinical develop, development for COVID and about 200 in preclinical development. Most of them are for intramuscular injection, as it's listed in red in the middle of the slide. And if we look at phase three, which is just before you prove efficacy, um, there are 50 products being tested right now and 11 in phase four, which is effectively post-marketing surveillance. There's an enormous amount of research that's been done. Now I show this slide not to interest you, but to, and not to bamboozle you, just to illustrate that one company alone is working on so many different mRNA vaccines for um, uh, COVID from the original Wuhan through Beta, Delta, um, and Omicron variants. And I just draw your attention to the bottom of the slide when the combinations are being worked on by Moderna of a COVID and flu vaccine two in one, and, and in phase one, a COVID, flu, and RSV three in one, which may be coming along in 12 to 18 months. So looking at the combined flu COVID vaccines, a number of companies are doing very nice research. And another one, Novavax, is currently in phase two of a combined COVID flu vaccine. So it could be available already by next year. Already, we know that the vaccine combination is feasible. It's been well tolerated in phase two studies and it's immunogenic, but it's very hopeful. I think this year we'll be having separate vaccines concomitantly in different arms, um, but by the year after, we could have a combined two-in-one or even getting close to a three-in-one uh, vaccine. So when to boost is the question that was posed to me. Uh, and I think the answer is pretty straightforward. Most people who are at risk have had four doses and those who are immunocompromised have had five. And if we look in by the end of 2022, people who needed four doses, less than 50% have had the fourth dose. 75% have had the third dose and over 95% have had two doses. But there's a lot of room still amongst the vulnerable population to get a booster that will be safe and more protective than just the two or just the three doses that people currently have. So my prediction is for a fifth dose to be introduced by ATAGI over the next couple of weeks to be given from April, May uh, of this year uh, as an autumn booster at the same time as flu vaccine is also being given as a booster. That's my prediction. I was asked also to speak to side effects and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. This is something that we've, we've looked at very carefully over the last two years. And we know that with the mRNA vaccines, uh, with teenage boys getting their second dose, there's a risk of up to one in 10,000 of getting a short period of myocarditis. The great majority of cases uh, and the most commonly occurs one in 10,000 older teenage boys, second dose. The most, uh, most of these side effects settle within one to two weeks. There are occasional reports from cardiologists of ongoing symptoms, but that's the exception, not, not the rule. And then, of course, with the homegrown product, so to speak, the uh, AstraZeneca product, uh, also called Vaxzevria, we got the TTS, the thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome. And that was a concern, uh, and so it was uh, limited to older, uh, middle-aged and older adults 
in Australia. And the TGA has reported that there have been 14 deaths uh, from a vaccination in people between 21 and 81 and 13 related to Vax Zevria. And the um, thrombosis is the, the, the main cause of that. So that's a concern, but we've actually saved literally tens of thousands of lives from dying uh, who would otherwise, uh, without vaccination, have died uh, from thrombosis from the actual disease. So the risk from the disease is so much higher than the risk from the vaccine. Um, I like to style myself as Astra Boy because I had two doses of Astra myself uh, in 2021. Um, and that's me when I used to have yellow hair. And I've had boosters of Pfizer in, during 2022. Um, and um, I uh, have had two doses, mild doses of breakthrough infection. Both had respiratory symptoms for three days and both had some lethargy for a few weeks afterwards. The best immunity for your patient and yourself is a hybrid immunity, a combination of natural infection, which hopefully is relatively mild, and um, vaccination. Um, and that combination is stronger and longer lasting protection against severe disease, as you well know. Now, uh, I'll only list a couple of studies from the last few months, one in the New England Journal that showed uh, that the risk of getting BA5, the most common variant uh, in the second half of last year, was lower if you'd had a previous BA1 or BA2 Omicron infection. And vaccination was also uh, adding to that protection. So hybrid immunity uh, is, is helpful and important in preventing severe disease. And here's a paper that I saw published only last week from the Canadian Medical Association Journal. And it showed that people who were getting Omicron in 2022, if they'd had their third dose of COVID-19 vaccine, they had 90% decrease in COVID deaths amongst people with multiple medical problems, multiple chronic conditions. Most of those who had two doses had had their second dose six months or more previously. So if you've got patients who are six months out and they haven't had their third or they haven't had their fourth dose, the, uh, the implication is obvious. Now, in Hong Kong, HK, the BA2 Omicron variant was, was particularly uh, prominent with a high mortality rate 12 months ago in Hong Kong. And they got 3 million people boosted between November and March of 2022. And the outcome after uh, either an mRNA vaccine or the local Chinese brand, both having had the third dose was a 90% improvement on life saving. But the actual mRNA only led to 1.3 per uh, million person days of death compared with the Coronavac, which is based on a killed viral approach, which is not as effective um, of 5.3. So the Chinese are getting better, but the, the vaccines they've developed have not been nearly as good as the mRNA-based vaccines, which they are now making of their own accord in China. So the clinical manifestations are interestingly quite different across the different variants. And originally uh, there was real concern about people dying in high mortality rates with whiteouts of lung and so on. That's become less of an issue with uh, Omicron, but the clinical manifestations and disease severity, this paper, just published at the end of last year, looking at children, um, showed that the rates of co-infection were really quite high between SARS and other viruses, respiratory viruses. 
and that in patients who'd had uh, Delta and Omicron had more frequently had fever and upper respiratory symptoms. Um, and in addition, the co-infections led to more severe disease. And if you had uh, an underlying medical problem, that too led to more severe disease, not something unexpected. But what's interesting is with Omicron, uh, originally in children, we got a lot of um, one in 3,000 were getting a respiratory syndrome, um, uh, uh, inflammation, post-infectious inflammation, two to six weeks after the original, and they would get some cardiac and other systemic effects. So it was really quite worrying. Well, once Omicron kicked in and we had massive amounts of infection, we suddenly discovered that PIMS, the paediatric inflammatory uh, medical syndrome, uh, was actually much less common after Omicron than after the previous variants. So that was very interesting. So what we're learning from the UK, from Europe, uh, the US and locally, is that the COVID-19 pandemic may well be ending, but it's not quite over yet. Um, we lost 15,000 people in Australia in 12 months last year, compared with only 100 per month in the previous two years. And uh, we've lost another six or 700 people only in the month of January this year. So we now have a virus that's very highly transmissible, lower virulence, but because so many are infected, we're still getting high rates of death. So we need to optimize our vaccination and booster rates, to use antivirals in vulnerable people. I'm so glad my GP prescribed for me by um, E um, script, and I was able to, within 12 hours, get uh, uh, treatment. I've got some medical problems of my own, which I won't bore you with. Um, but the question becomes, will we reach a point quite soon where we're living much better with COVID-19, uh, despite the high infection uh, prevalence? New variants remain a possibility, but because we've gone now for nearly 15 months without a new variant of concern, maybe the virus has run out of tricks. Maybe it can't mutate into something that's more severe and more transmissible yet again. Maybe it's just got to the point where we're starting to win the immune race against the virus, is hoping. But the vulnerable, the people with multiple medical problems, disability, indigenous, um, very elderly, require still our attention and our vaccination and boosting. So I read this uh, just a few days ago. The US actually plans to stop buying COVID shots in six months' time in their fall, which is our, their autumn and our spring. So Pfizer and Moderna are currently being bought by the government and given to people for free, $21 a dose, but it's gonna cost when they go private over $100 a dose. So yet again, um, there's a concern about whether people will be able to afford it. And people who have an appropriate health insurance scheme in America will, but there are plenty of hot cracks in the floor and plenty of people will miss out. On the positive side, if you look at the italic section, uh, US ordered 171 million Omicron boosters uh, only about six months ago. Um, and they've only used 51 million, so they've still got 120 million doses to distrib distribute for free. So that should help um, vulnerable people, provided we get needles into arms in the US, which is not nearly as good at doing it as we are uh, in Australia, and hats off to the healthcare workers who've been giving vaccine who might be paying attention. So our progress uh, with COVID vaccines is we've now got second generation vaccines to cover Omicron. 
We can't prevent transmission. All we do is prevent severe disease, which is important. We've got good safety profiles with vaccines. And we, we have an ongoing issue with maintaining acceptance of COVID vaccines. Uh, flu, a few words on that. Influenza actually means influence of the stars. And it also, in old um, Latin, meant epidemics. Um, it was actually a, a byword for epidemic. And uh, we know that variation in the spike proteins of COVID are important. And likewise, hemagglutinin and neurobinidase are the spike proteins of flu. In 2019, before COVID, we had over 800 deaths from flu recorded in Australia. But by 2020, only 37, 95% plus reduction. That's what social distancing did and closing the borders. And then it reverberated and recurred uh, in 2022 with 300 plus deaths, while we had 15,000 COVID deaths. So they're not quite comparable yet. One of the things about 2022 that we should know for this year is that the flu uh, epidemic came on early and it could well do that again this year. That is a real concern. It kicked in in May. Um, and the states gave free vaccine out in June, July, which was a little bit too late. So if the states are planning to give free vaccine this year, it should be from April, May and we should optimise uh, our vaccination earlier rather than later if we're to cover for an early peak uh, in this year. Now, last year, uh, flu is, was especially prominent in children under 10. Five to nine were most common, but kids under five also got disease. And vaccine effectiveness was good at 44%, but could have been better. Uh, and quite a lot of children got co-infection with two viruses. Um, a study we published last year showed that with the flu going away, meningococcal disease went away too. So there's a close, <clears throat> there's a close relationship between the two. But if there's no, <clears throat> if there's no flu, you're less likely to get invasive meningococcal disease. And we knew some of this already a century ago in the British Medical Journal, a military epidemic when people slept cheek by jowl. There were high carriage rates, overcrowding, and antecedent prior virus infection, which made the risk of meningococcal disease higher. So uh, this is a uh, editorial from two months ago in the Lancet saying preparing for uncertainty, endemic uh, common uh, yearly uh, uh, pediatric viral infections have surged. Uh, so as the non-pharmaceutical measures have stopped, um, and which originally stopped all sorts of viruses, now they've been coming back uh, over the last year in unexpected ways. So for example, the flu A season extended into, into summer in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, the last point there, crucially, the patterns of returning viral outbreaks have been heterogeneous. So there's been different locations, different populations, different pathogens. It's hard to predict, but I, what I can predict is there's a lot of new and old diseases coming back, and they've been coming back, not only at a viral level, but also at a bacterial level as well. So meningococcal and group A strep started surging at the end of uh, last year in Australia, but all these other viruses have been surging too in different parts of Australia. So it's quite, uh, uh, it's quite confronting the amount of disease that's coming back and presenting in primary care. So the, the reduced exposure to viruses uh, led to less immunity uh, in the community. And then we now have multiple super spreader events where people come together and they don't wear masks and viruses and some bacteria are spreading. 
uh, and in the interest of time, I'll move to this. See, this is what happened um, when you didn't have exposure during the COVID-19 control period. Um, you got uh, more and more children who didn't have immunity, waning immunity, and more and more older susceptible children. So what we're seeing now is that uh, outbreaks of respiratory viruses are not just in young children under one or two, but also in two and three-year-olds. And, and, and that's why the outbreaks look bigger. Uh, a minute on bird flu. This is a dead uh, uh, pelican and bird flu uh, has, is spreading and only in the last two weeks there's been real concern raised because not only is it bird flu but now it's mammal flu and I'll explain why. It was first uh, detected in China in 1996. Uh, an outbreak in Hong Kong in 97 led to human deaths and from 2005, the virus has been spilling out into migratory seabirds. But it's now hit a um, mink farm in Spain, and there appears to be mammal-to-mammal -mammal transmission of virus. So that's a real concern, because if it's going in mammals that are minks or ferrets, it could also get into humans and go from human to human by transmission as well. It's got a new mutation which is in the polymerase gene, and essentially that helps it to bind into a mammalian cell uh, and replicate much better. So uh, I'll cut to the end of this slide uh, in the italics. A sick or dead wild bird contains a lot of virus and scavenging mammals, seals even, and foxes have been catching infection opportunistically by predating, by eating dead and sick birds. Um, and global spread is now occurring and there's real concern. So although there's only been uh, less than a thousand cases of human H5N1 infection, over half of them have died. So were this to become transmissible between humans, it would be a real concern. This is uh, a Dutchman who looks a bit like me. He's a virologist and his name is Ron Fouchier. And he has done uh, a, an experiment in ferrets where he has done an experiment in ferrets where he did mutation of the, the H5N1 virus, uh, bird flu, and then passed it uh, from animal to animal. And having the animals in cages next to each other, it got to a point where with the passage, with the movement of virus from one to the next, initially he had to take samples and put it in the next cage. But eventually after five or seven, it got went through the air, droplets aerosol. So suddenly he'd done an experiment which armoured up the HYN1 and made it human transmissible. Really scary. I heard him present this in Malta uh, in 2011 and I was scared witless. I shivered up my spine. It was so frightening. And that is what we're still concerned about now. That's called gain of function, the means by which the virus may become better transmissible in humans and lead to a pandemic. And that's something we're really worried about. And we're seeing evidence in mammals from Spain right now where we're investigating very carefully. I'm not saying it is transmitting between uh, minks, which are like ferrets, but that is a real concern and it's being investigated rapidly. And I want to finish on monkeypox, which is uh, a virus which is about to spread like crazy uh, in Australia, especially in Sydney, uh, because of World Pride, which is starting on February the 17th and just over a week. 500,000 people will be coming to Australia. Uh, and this monkeypox is a relative of smallpox. 
There's probably 100,000 cases in over 100 countries already, 150 in Australia. Uh, and the Australian Sexual um, HIV and Hepatitis uh, Organisation uh, has put together a toolkit for GPs that's available online. I'm looking at the very last line of my slide here. There's a sexual health update right now um, with free dinner and free drinks. So if you had enough of my talking, you can leave now and you can go, I think it's um, to Bronte, uh, to, the, uh, to the local hotel there. But um, anyway, you can access online uh, a toolkit which really emphasises the uh, hand hygiene, community awareness, extra care at sex parties, which are going to be happening in the next few weeks in Sydney, but it's going to spread out into rural and regional areas as well. So uh, if you've got um, uh, gay and bisexual men in your clientele and they've not been vaccinated, even one dose of vaccine is partly protective. Two doses is highly protective. Genios vaccine is available. Uh, it's usable in immunosuppressed people. So there's a real reason to keep your eyes and ears out for uh, pox-like uh, disseminated skin infections in gay and bisexual men uh, and to raise their awareness of the disease and to offer them vaccine, even if they only get one dose um, before the big event uh, occurs. So in, in summary, um, uh, I've predicted that we'll be getting a fifth dose of COVID quite soon concurrently with the flu boost. I think there are many recrudescent diseases which must be making people in GP land incredibly busy at the moment. I've presaged the possibility of bird flu being the next pandemic even this year. I think not likely, but it's still possible. And monkeypox is uh, one week away from us around the corner and you're likely to see patients in your practice, especially if you've uh, got an inner, inner uh, Sydney uh, general practice. So uh, thank you for your attention. I hope you uh, got a clear message from what I was saying. Thank you. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that Health Ed has put together for you. Health Ed webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthed.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.